Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. Uh, I personally am an evangelical, but I, I feel ashamed of saying that I'm an evangelical just because we seem to be on the wrong side of things, and I just don't want to be associated with that. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. I would love for you just to introduce yourself, your name and who you are and, and what you do. Absolutely, Bobby. Thank you for the invitation. It's um, it's quite a treat to uh, to be in conversation today. You know, I actually continue to follow your stories and, um, you know, the, the fascinating process that you guys went through with the twins and um, that whole story uh, regarding insurance and whatnot. It's, it's a perfect illustration of what's wrong with uh, healthcare in the country. So, um in any case, uh, uh, my name is Javier. I, I currently serve as the director of missions for uh, Buckner International. Um, and so what that means is that we serve um, our um, executive directors in country with support of their operations uh, with uh, programs and with teams as well as with program design. Um, I will be completing my term as director of missions in about a month from now, and I will be transitioning into a, a purely program design role for Buckner um, and a, at a regional level for Latin America. Home is a powerful word, powerful state of mind, and a sense of security for those across this United States of America fabric. In part one of this series examining the idea of home inside and outside our borders, we find ourselves in McAllen, Texas. I visited McAllen, Texas in January 2017 on a trip with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship to examine and understand one of the largest cultural passages from Latin America into the United States. This is where we find Javier Perez, Director of National Missions and Humanitarian Aid for Buckner Ministries. Javier not only serves the populations in southern Texas, specifically children of immigrants and those who are migrating, but he also is an immigrant as well. He came to the United States from Colombia on a student visa for his education, but now has converted into an H-1B visa as he works for Buckner Ministries in McAllen. He understands immigration, passage, home, and finds himself battling for his right to live in the U.S. as he helps those who immigrate to this great nation to build a sustainable relationship for their future. Now his future is in jeopardy. So tell me real quick, who is Buckner? This is important because I didn't realize how big Buckner is in the state of Texas. That's right, Buckner. Um, some people call us Buckners. Um, and so um, Buckner is, is a nonprofit organization uh, founded by a Baptist pastor who moved from Tennessee to Texas, to Paris, Texas, about 138 years ago. The organization was founded originally in the midst of the Civil War when this pastor realized that there were so many uh, children uh, being orphaned by the war. And so he started developing orphanages uh, to care for these children. Interestingly enough, um, today, um, just an interesting fact about Buckner, we have 27 board members um, because uh, Father Buckner, 
which is how we call Robert C. Buckner, founded the organization with exactly $27. He gathered the deacons of his church in Paris, Texas, around uh, an oak tree and asked them to donate. Um, and he actually was able to collect $27. Since those $27 and, and that first orphanage uh, was founded, uh, Buckner has grown to be an international uh, um, development organization serving in, in, um, in Latin America, in Africa, and here in Texas. Um, in Latin America, we are serving in Peru, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Mexico. And here in Texas, uh, we're all over the state. And in Africa, we're in Kenya right now. Our work revolves around really four core areas. The first one is Family Hope Centers. The main goal of the Family Hope Centers is to strengthen families uh, via case management, uh, family coaching, and economic strengthening. And we also offer foster care both in Texas and abroad. This is an interesting fact, uh, uh, Bobby. One of the things that we have been doing, Buckner has been at the forefront of helping Latin American governments develop and structure uh, the foster care systems, um, and even pass the legislation around uh, what foster care looks like and is all about. And the third area of work for us is retirement, which we only do uh, here in Texas. And so um, that's that's what we do, Bobby. It, it's quite a it's quite a busy time, and, and it's it's really a big organization around the world. So let's put this in perspective for many people that kind of operate outside of a lot of the work that you do so they can contextualize a little bit. Bottom line is you really work with a lot of the Latin American individuals that are coming across the border that are in some way either relocating to the area or finding new places and homes and finding passage here. Talk about that mission as it relates to our common day knowledge and common day uh, vernacular a little bit, if that's okay. That's right. No, absolutely. Um, that's true, uh, Bobby. In a given week, um, I, I might uh, serve um, a Guatemalan family in Guatemala, or I might serve a Guatemalan family in Mexico, or I might serve a Guatemalan family in Texas. Um, and that really is our approach. Um, as we serve throughout the continent, uh, one of the things that we notice about migration is that there are pull and push factors. Um, and so we're trying to address the push factors in Latin America that uh, create migration. The push factors primarily include uh, poverty, uh, lack of employment, insecurity um, and um, and the push factors, which is to say the factors that invite people, the pull factors, I'm sorry, the pull factors that invite people into the U.S. Um, are employment, safety, um, and resources. And so again, there are pull factors, which are, which are factors that pull people into the country to migrate and push factors, which push families out of the country. Uh, while we're not able to address the pull factors, we are able to address the push factors, um, items such as uh, uh, unemployment, family disintegration, and uh, only indirectly security or safety of the families involved. And so, yeah, that, that's what we're doing. And through the Family Hope Centers, uh, that's that's our main goal. Uh, what we really, um, it is to make sure that those families were migrating, um, and our dream is that one day they wouldn't have to migrate. 
because as you and I know, people don't migrate because they want to. I mean, some of us do. Like it was my case, I migrated for education purposes. Um, but it's not as simple as that for other people. Uh, most people migrate because they have to, because they are pushed out of their countries. And so we're trying to create those conditions there um, so that families just don't have to. Because if you ask them, um, perhaps 10 out of 10, this is not empirical data, but perhaps 10 out of 10 will not want to migrate. Uh, they want to stay home, except they just can't. And so we're just trying to address those conditions. You are in the epicenter of this big, large, complex, multidimensional, multifaceted conversation of migration and immigration. That's right. Talk about McAllen, Texas, and the geography associated with our connection and our conversation today. This is an interesting place, uh, Bobby. Um, it is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a newsworthy location. If it is not because of our migration issues, I never thought that I would be at the center of so much conflict, of so many news cycles, of so many um, uh, dialogues, and even political. Uh, issues in this country. But the truth of the matter is that the border is this interesting place. Um, uh, Gloria Anzaldúas, um, a, a poet who was actually born here in the Rio Grande Valley, she wrote a beautiful poem. Um, and in this poem, uh, she describes the border as a scab, as a wound, uh, where the third, country, the third world grates against the first world, and it bleeds. And then before that wound has been able to create, to form a scab, then it grates again, and there's yet another wound, and then it bleeds again. And so there's a constant state of fluidity. There's a constant state of, of, of hurt. I think that describes the border very well in that it is also a space of transition. There's there's a sense of liminality here at the border, Bobby. Um, people were very um, interested when I moved into the valley, and th there was a question that they always asked me, and it took me several years to understand the depth of that, of that question, which was, so what brings you to the valley? Uh, because you see, people don't, don't move to the valley. People don't go to the valley. People go through the valley, uh, usually on to somewhere else. And describe, what, what do you mean by the valley for people that don't understand the geography there? That's, I remember you talked about it. It's right there, McAllen, right across the border, and it's kind of a staging ground. It's called the valley. Describe it geographically for us a little bit. That's right. The valley, I don't even know why it's called a valley because it's not an actual valley. It's more like a, like a desert. <laughs> um, so the valley, um, it's you know colloquially known um, as the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, it's formed by Hidalgo County, Hidalgo County, Willacy County, and there's a third county that I forget. Um, and so basically there's a, a, most of the counties – that are uh, bordering uh, Mexico, uh, starting in Brownsville, all the way up to Peñitas, Texas, uh, which is the border uh, with Willacy County. And so um, 
that that's what that's what's known as the as the Rio Grande Valley, uh, Bobby, and it's it's all the border area with Mexico, Texas, and Mexico. One of the things that I think um, I've learned over the years, and I love your perspective on this, is that I have visited, and, and you and I've talked about this, um, many of the different border towns, quote unquote. You know, you've got uh, right there at McAllen. You know, y- y'all have taken me to a couple within the valley. You know, I've visited some in Arizona over at Numa and Nogales and uh, Sells, Arizona, all throughout that area where it's a lot of that is more um, Indian reservation. And then California over um, in Juarez, right there at San Diego. And so I've seen a lot of these. But one of the things I think that people have a misconception of is when we say the border, they assume the border wall. That's right. Right. But the border is a bigger institution than just a wall. Would you agree with that? And I know you've had, you know, I've had these discussions. It's a big institution. It's massive from all perspectives. It is. It is. I mean, I don't even think I, after living here for seven years, um, I even have a full understanding of what the word border means because it's both a geography as much as it is a political idea. And so the border is a geography in that it spans three states um, in the country. It's comprised of a desert. Uh, it's comprised of, um, of urban centers, um, of uh, oceans, rivers. And so it's, it's this massive, uncontainable and unsurmountable geography uh, that you think of it, if you think of it as a border wall, uh, you're missing 99.9% of what the border is, geographically speaking. Um, and so, but what the border also is, is a political idea. And more and more, it has political connotations uh, to it on who's in and who's out, uh, who's worth it and who's not, whose life is valued at a higher price and who's whose life is valued at a lower price. And so um, I think it's worth exploring both the geographic as well as the political dimensions of what the border means these days. And, you know, we asked that to many different people during my trip to McAllen, Texas. You know, we asked the landowner who had land on either side. And the border was something different because he or she was caught in a situation of, having to manage their property on either side of the border because it was part of their family heritage before the border was even a conversation. But when Mexico spanned across into Texas, you know, it was their own property. And then they also talk about, you know, safety as it relates to the cartels. And then you have the border patrol that are trying to manage it. Then you have organizations like yourself that look at it as a, you're trying to serve those people both here and afar. And so there's so many perspectives to this idea of a border. And I'm always fascinated by what you talk about is, you know, you're going out and working with these people that have come here to provide them ways to find citizenship and be productive people in the communities through your, your centers. Talk about how, it's not so much that you've accepted the reality. You're just there to serve. Is that? Would you say that's correct? I think that's right. I'm trying to get the full depth of your question because there's 
there's a lot in it. Right. Um, I guess I'm taking your question in, in multiple layers. The first one is that as Christians, we have to ask the question, what's our job? And, you know, we do this from a faith-based perspective, and we mobilize a lot of churches to work in it. And believe it or not, there's uh, plenty of uh, political dialogue to be had about serving immigrants in Texas, um, in churches. And so the first question that we have to answer as Christians and even as human beings, what's our What's our purpose? Are we, is it our purpose to make sure that people stay out of a given place or a given location, or that we welcome them into the idea of the kingdom? And so the answer that we that we provide is rather simple: um, that wherever people are, people are, we welcome them into the kingdom, uh, understanding the kingdom as that place to bring healing and health. And so that's the first thing: we we just accept the reality that people are people, and people are welcome into the kingdom, and we do the best we can to welcome them into that kingdom. The second is we help people navigate a sense of hospitality with a sense of hospitality as they're here. Again, we also understand that they would have rather not moved, but they did because home is the mouth of a shark, as the poet says. And so they were trying to escape that shark. And as they do that, we're welcoming them and we're helping them navigate this this location and, and this new geography and this new country and the new laws and everything that comes with it. Uh, a lot of people constantly ask, are, are, are they citizens and why, why don't they become citizens? Um, the question is uh, one that um, you, you'll know has... Uh, has a lot of misinformation, um, and it, it, it stems from that saying um, along the lines of, why don't they get in line? Well, the answer is, there's no such a thing as a line. Even for those of us who have had the institutions behind us, the education, and, and, and even know how to navigate systems, it's difficult, sometimes impossible. And so even more so for families like this ones, uh, like the ones we serve, they have no money, no support, no idea how to navigate the systems. There's not a line for them. When you commit a crime, such as a parking ticket, you can get out of it by either paying it or going through um, a defensive driving course, you know, and I would know about that because I've been through it a couple of times. But when you break the law of overstaying a visa or even uh, crossing the bridge, um, in an unauthorized fashion, there's no way for you to uh, overcome that. Um, let's call it that crime, if you will. Um, that that broke that that law that you broke. There's just no way about that around it. Tell me, from a spiritual standpoint, how do you serve these individuals coming here or there? Especially given you are working under a non-Catholic approach, a Baptist approach, but many of the individuals coming across or are in Latin America countries are predominantly Catholic. Talk about that, that cultural service and that connection and how do you serve across those uh, denominational boundaries? That's an excellent question. Um, And one, we have actually had plenty of conversations about, um, but the answer is actually very simple. Um, we're faith-based, but we're not a religious organization. And so that, that makes a difference. Our goal is not to evangelize or proselytize. Our goal 
is to strengthen families and to serve children. Wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever religion they profess, our goal is to look them in the eye and tell them that there is hope. And that that hope has no religion, that that hope has no gender, that hope has no political affiliation, and that hope has, um, has only the idea and the love of Christ in it. And so, again, this might be too simple an answer, but um, that's not something that we actually even consider in our services, um, other than to make sure that we are communicating the love of Christ, even if we don't open our mouths to say that. Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. You know, I've I've been fascinated with your work, and one of the things I've really thought about y'all a lot is we've had... There's been national attention on many of the camps where the children have been staying. And, you know, there's a lot of people are misinformed about what the camps are all about. And there's there's a lot of conversation. Let's talk about those camps a little bit and how Buckner is helping getting children to the right place. I'd love to hear your perspective here. That's an excellent question, and thank you for asking that. Um, my first piece of the answer is is a caveat. I am perhaps not the most um, technically informed person on this topic, and so um, if there's any correction to be made, um, I, I I stand ready to be uh, corrected. Um, so the first thing that that we need to do is that we need to separate between government-run facilities. And non-profit run, non-profit run facilities. We have had again a lot of conversation about this because there's been a lot of criticism about the nonprofits running this these centers. We're not one of them, so I, we have personally no interest, if you will, in in clarifying this topic other than a personal interest of mine. So there's been a lot of criticism around the facilities providing the support, um, which is something that I would I would challenge uh, us to even think about um, because some these children have to be cared for regardless of who does it. Someone has to care for these children. I contend that I would rather it be a faith-based nonprofit organization than a government-run facility, than a, a government-run institution. And so... These facilities like Southwest Key, like BCFS, which is Baptist Child and Family Services, and there's, I'm sure, plenty other organizations caring for these children. Uh, some of them are doing a great job. Some of them are not. Um, but I contend that 
most of these nonprofits are doing the best they can with what they have. And I don't mean resources-wise, I mean complexity-wise, because it's a very complex situation. Caring for these children is it's a hard, hard task. Now, just because this, these are children who are survivors, and as such, they'll act, they live as survivors. Um, but also because these are children who are, some of them are, 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 are deeply traumatized by this experience. And so the other camps, as you mentioned, are the government-run facilities, the tent cities, um, where there are complex intricacies. Even some uh, some organizations like BCFS are trying to go into these camps to serve and structure the programs, but the governments continue to run uh, like this uh, um, state department, not the state department, the defense department, um, uh, and USC, uh, Homeland Security. There are so many uh, agencies that I get them confused. Um, Homeland Security is running some of these centers. I cannot speak about the work that's done there. But um, I think that would be the first thing to do. It is to uh, separate that understanding. Um, with that in mind, I think it would be best for these centers not to exist. Um, in that in order for them not to exist, you would have to eliminate the policies of, of apprehending the children. However, in several of these instances, the children that are put there are the children that are unaccompanied, which no one has ever, ever, ever said that that's wrong. If a child is unaccompanied, I think the country has a responsibility to care for them to the best of its abilities. And I think BCFS and Southwest Key are programs who are doing a great job at it. Um, but I don't think that the government should be apprehending children that are with their parents, which is a whole different situation. And so, again, that more layers of complexity. Yeah. And one of the things that I think you brought up that is interesting to me that is lost in this narrative is there are families that literally drop off their children at the border on the on the Mexican side and tell them to walk towards the Border Patrol. That's right. And we we don't have a grasp of that because we don't we can't imagine as Americans, I guess, what if we would do that just for right. a better place. We don't we we can't comprehend that. Mm-hmm. And so which led to the whole idea of the Border Patrol was overwhelmed and they didn't know what to do with all these children. Thus Sister Norma comes into play and she gives us a taste of what it was like in these facilities because Border Patrol is completely overwhelmed, and so groups like Buckner are, are trying to step in to help with these situations, but there's only so much y'all can do, right? Right, and so, again, again, I, I just love uh, the nuances of your question. You just said, we as Americans cannot comprehend, and that's right. I mean, there is no way, absolutely no way, for someone who lives in a context where opportunity abounds, where safety, for, where public safety works, where health care systems work, albeit broken, but work very well, where taxation works and it actually goes to the public, where even government works, believe it or not. It's impossible for someone who lives in a context like that to understand why 
a parent would do that to his or her child. And so just think about it. How bad would it have to be? How bad would it have to be for you to be willing to do that? And, and that's, that's an actual question. How bad would it have to be, Bobby, for you to be able to do that? It would have to be bad. It would have to be incredibly bad. Incredibly bad. And, and, and that's why I think our interview with you is so important because I think we're going to lead to the question of you making your own journey, right? Right. But beyond that, let's talk about something. I, I watched a video um, from the Ethics Daily on uh, Vimeo from the Prayer Vigil. And something you said that really struck me as a Christian, as a human rights person, as a lover of my country, of all these pieces that are bound together, right this second during that vigil, you were you said that you at that point in time just felt ashamed to be evangelical. Oh yeah, talk about that a little bit. What does that mean? And describe that moment in a way that we can put context to it. Wow, um, that, that's an issue I have grappled with for many years, Bobby, um, both here in the States and even more so when I was in Colombia. It seems like evangelicals are known for everything that's wrong in this world. I, I know very few evangelicals that you would know them for, know them for being people who do something meaningful for the world. And so it seems like as evangelical evangelicals, we're standing always on the wrong side of things. We seem to be pro-life, but also, but but only to prohibit women to do something. Uh, we seem to be uh, pro-families, but only to prohibit um, uh, certain groups from becoming parents. We seem to be pro, pro, pro many things, but only to prohibit people from doing things. Very few of us evangelicals are known for accepting people for who they are, for loving them, for giving them, for being radically hospital, hospitable, for, uh, for welcoming them. And I don't mean immigrants. I mean every single person. And that's embarrassing, Bobby. Uh, I personally, I'm an evangelical, but I, I feel ashamed of saying that I'm an evangelical just because we seem to be on the wrong side of things. And I just don't want to be associated with that. You know, my family in Latin America, they're Catholics. And every time I say I'm an evangelical, they ask me uh, why so many evangelicals uh, um, um, are, are supporting uh, uh, uh uh, I mean, in Colombia, why are so many evangelicals rejected the peace accord? <laughs> in in Brazil, why so many evangelicals support a president who uh, who has amounts? I mean, a myriad of uh, cases uh, um, of investigations for murder, for for tax evasion, and we seem to be from the U.S. all the way down to Latin America supporting the wrong causes and that's embarrassing man i mean talk about it i don't want to be associated with that so what made you come from colombia well that's actually a very easy story i was not looking to come um um I just came for an education. My my goal uh, was simple. I wanted to learn English um, and get some um, graduate education. 
um, be here for uh, a brief period of time and then go back um, to Latin America. That plan, of course, uh, was was changed a little bit. Um, you came here on a visa? And a, I came a, here on a visa, on a student visa. That's right. Okay. And after that, I transitioned to a work visa to work for Buckner. Um, and I I was here for about six years on the work visa. And then how did all that change? Was it when you met your wife? Um, yeah. So the, how that changed um, was because, you know, I started to just basically create a life here. I met, I met my, um, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and then uh, we got married. We had a child, um, our first kid, um, who was born here. I got a job. And so we started just really making life. Um, and my wife is from Mexico, and so uh, we're both uh, migrants in that sense of the word. And your visas are on – talk about the scheduling of your visas because – you would you shared with me that because you're from two different countries and on two different time situations with the application of your visas, you're always in constant application process to stay. Is that correct? Yes, we were. Um, I'll, I'll share with you in a minute. Uh, we'll be departing the country in about a month from now exactly. Uh, but yeah, for the past uh, six years that I was here, it was a constant struggle. Um, so my job depends on me having a driver's license. It's as simple as that. Uh, sometimes my visa would get delayed, um, because DHS would, and DHS, USCIS would delay it. And so my wife's visa would get delayed. She would have to leave the country and spend two or three months outside of the country just so we don't accrue unlawful time. Um, and then I would have, um, I would not have a driver's license, which meant I could not really work. Like quite literally, I was not allowed to work because I didn't have a driver's license, and so I would have to wait. Um, and so, just talk about the the emotional cost, the financial cost of doing all of that, and and it was really every year uh, because my wife's visa, even though my visa was for three years, her visa had to be renewed every year uh, because she was on a dependent visa type situation. As you know, there's there's an attack on H one B visas. And so um, we were not able to renew. Um, and so for that reason, um, we'll just be leaving the country uh, here in a month or so. Tell me about that visa and talk about the parameters around that visa. Well, it's it's an H-1B visa. Um, and the H-1B visa is given to people that are known as um, highly skilled in their profession, uh, which for starters, I don't even know how I ever got it. Um, and so, um, that visa lasts for three years. You can only work for the organization that sponsors the visa. Um, your spouse cannot work for anyone, um, other than go to school. And so you renew it every, every three years only for, uh, you, you get it for three years and you can renew one more time. So you can have it up to six years. Um, after that, you have the option of asking your employer to sponsor, um, a longer term type situation, in which case, um, uh, you know, you have to go through a process that a very expensive, very complex process. In our case, we were not able to to complete that process because the the, the regulations were not in place uh, or became very difficult. The environment became very difficult for us to be able to do it. Um, and so our visa will be expiring uh, in actually exactly two months from now. 
if I remember correctly, a part of that requirement uh, for that visa is um, a salary piece. Talk about that. It was there before. It, it has always been there, but it was very reasonable. This year and the year before, the prevailing wage, basically the figure that the government says you have to pay your employee this amount, uh, went up, I mean, incredibly high in a way that only in high income earners are now able to attain those visas. Um, of course, working for the social services for nonprofit sector, <laughs> you're nothing close to being a high income earner. And so that basically that visa category, which is quite literally the only visa category that you have available to you to work here for a nonprofit organization goes away. And so that's what happened. So this is the intersection that I think is fascinating. Here you have come to America legally through a process to gain your education. And then through your education, started to work for an organization that served the great state of Texas and the individuals in Texas and beyond the borders to help them, people, children, to get educated, to understand the process, to find economic development on the other side, you know, the Latin American side, Mm -hmm. and to build relationships to further make this immigration process a better one. And thus, that integration process is keeping you from being here to serve those people. Wouldn't you say that is the most convoluted, backwards way to serve individuals like yourself in order to help solve this immigration problem? I mean, it's it's certainly an interesting turn of events for us. Um, I, I again, I'm, I'm too close to the issue to to be able to speak objectively into it, but it's it's certainly an interesting uh, turn of events for us. Uh, not something that we expected. And again, here you have someone who who has connections, who has uh, you know a, a rather large institution behind me, um, who has the education, and after you know attorneys and all of that just simply was not able to stay. Uh, And the only thing that that makes me wonder is, so what are we expecting everyone else to do? And how, I mean, uh, how, how do we do this? And the only way I feel comfortable talking about this is because this migration problem is not happening only here in the States. It's a global problem. It's a conversation we're having in Colombia, in my own country. Uh, were children who are migrating from Venezuela, Bobby. Hear this. Children who are migrating from Venezuela, who are being born in Colombia, have no nationality. Because the Colombian constitution says that whoever arrives into our country unlawfully and has children there, those children have no nationality unless they go to their country of origins um, um, embassy or consulate and claim it. But if they go there, they run the risk of being deported back to Venezuela. So they just won't. In my second home country, which is Mexico, you're having the same issues uh, of Central Americans coming to Mexico. And believe it or not, 
in the caravan that's going through Mexico right now, um, you hear the same arguments. People saying, let's care for Mexicans first. Uh, you care for the caravan. What about the Mexican poor? Does that sound familiar to you? Um, um, you hear, you drive in the highways of uh, Dominican Republic and check this out. You see in the highways um, advertisement that says, let's build that border wall to avoid Haitians from coming into the DR. Yeah. And then you go to Puerto Rico and the same thing is happening to Dominican Republic, uh, to Dominicans. Puerto Ricans don't want Dominicans. It's a global problem, Bobby. It really is. It is amazing. And, and so this leads me to what scares you? Humanity. Humanity scares me. Um, that's very simple. Humanity scares me. I, I no longer know what to believe, Bobby. I no longer know what to think of humanity. It is so broken. It is so selfish. It is so malleable too. You know, you tell people to believe whatever you want them to believe and they will. So long as you say it with charisma and sound credible. And so the fact that humanity is not anchored in in truth, that scares me a lot. And 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 I don't know what to make of it. What encourages you? Hmm. Humanity. <laughs> um to see communities um, of radical hospitality, they're still around. They're not very good at promoting their own work and saying what they're doing, but there are pockets of hope around humanity. And I just wish that, um, that those who are spreading hope, radical love, radical inclusion, radical hospitality would be more. Um and, and uh, that's what encourages me. Javier, it has been a pleasure to connect with you again. It has been an honor to talk to you. Um, you know, my heart is with you and your family as you have to leave this great nation to go somewhere else because of the fact of the matter of the work that you do. And it, it is my hope that we stay connected regardless of borders and that and that we can reconnect at, an, at a future date to learn more about your travels and what's the next step for you so thank you thank you for your time thank you bobby it's been it's been a pleasure too and i uh, i sincerely hope to stay connected as well uh, we're fearful of what might come next but we're also excited um because I always said, you know, throughout the whole time that I was here, I am here until God tells me otherwise. And uh, someone told me a couple of days ago, you know, that you're fearful of what's to come, but God, God authorized this. And so um, I'm just excited for what's next. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. 
Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.